Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. The world has been keeping legal correspondents really busy lately. Donald Trump has been reshaping the entire American judiciary. Some huge cases are coming before the U.S. Supreme Court in its new term. And, of course, we're heading toward an impeachment process that could test not just our legal system, but our entire democracy and its systems of checks and balances. Yes, of course, the headlines are keeping people who like to talk about the law and the Constitution really interested lately. Uh, we are joined up front today by somebody who spends a lot of her time thinking and writing about these things. Dahlia Lithwick is a senior editor and legal correspondent at Slate, where she also hosts a podcast called Amicus. She will be the keynote speaker at National Council of Jewish Women, Michigan's annual benefit luncheon, uh, Women of Vision Today. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I'm exhausted just listening to that intro. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to say, right? Yeah. Uh, I should also note that uh, Dahlia is someone I met, uh, it seems like a million years ago, uh, when I was uh, a correspondent for, a legal correspondent for Knight Rider newspapers covering the Supreme Court. Uh, Dahlia was, the, at that time, I think you were with Slate then, yeah, is yeah, that right? I've yeah, I've never changed. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's really good to see her in person and great to see her here. Uh, in Detroit. So let's start with the sort of immediate news uh, in this sphere, uh, the, the gerrymandering ruling that we saw from the Supreme Court this week. I don't think anyone was terribly surprised by this, but there was this sliver of hope, I think, here in Michigan that the lower court ruling, which said that uh, Republicans in this state had unconstitutionally drawn the maps back in 2010, uh, I think people felt like there was some chance that the, the, the court would support that. And of course, we've got uh, a big change coming in the way that we draw the maps anyway. Uh, what was your reaction to the ruling? I, I mean, I didn't think there was even a sliver of a chance. We <laughs> knew uh, after June when the court essentially said there is no lane for federal uh, courts to get involved in gerrymandering questions. Uh, it was fairly clear that they meant, we really mean there's no lane. Uh, Don't and, bring these cases back yeah, here. And they had, you know, they had done the same thing with an Ohio gerrymandering uh, challenge in uh, early October. So I think it was fairly clear that when they said the federal judiciary is out of the gerrymandering business, uh, that, that we needed to take that seriously. And I think, to me, the reaction was, this is what it's going to look like on the ground. Yeah. You know, that that was incredibly theoretical. We were talking about North Carolina at the time. We were talking about Maryland at the time. But no, there are challenges around the country. Uh, there are going to be very real effects on the ground. And so to me, it was a little bit of I told you so. It's yeah. going to happen. And at the same time, I feel like there's this new momentum, I guess, behind the idea that allowing political partisans to draw these maps is probably the wrong way to do it. I mean, as I referenced here in Michigan in 2018, we voted to change the way that we're going to do this. And we're going to try to put together an independent commission. No one quite knows what that's going to look like, I think, or what that really means. But at least it's a step in the other direction. We're starting to see some other states really think about that as well. So even as the court is saying this is not something we're going to do, I think people are starting to think this doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a paradox for those of us. When the decision came down uh, at the end of the term, a lot of us said the sky is falling. And if you read Elena Kagan's dissent, 
uh, which is, I think, one of the angriest dissents I've ever seen her pen. Yeah. Uh, it felt like the sky is falling. And ironically, when the court says this is not justiciable, what rushes in is exactly what you're describing, which is citizen activism, whether it's uh, states that are now finding, you know, under their state constitutions and state Supreme Courts that they can do away with partisan gerrymandering the way Pennsylvania did, or whether we have uh, statewide commissions. It does feel as though citizen activism is going to fill the gap left by the court. And maybe that's better for democracy. It certainly, I think, would make us, those of us who really said this is the wheels coming off constitutional <laughs> democracy, feel a lot better if we're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the big cases that are coming up this term. First Monday was just a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, we've got we've got some interesting things on the docket, although I, I would like to sort of compare what you're looking forward to this term to, let's say, 15, 16 years ago when I was at the court, it's a really different place now. And I feel like it is a less, um, well, there are fewer big cases in the sense that, that I can remember there being many of during a term. And I, I do feel like that's something that Chief Justice John Roberts really wants the court to, to be doing. He wants the court in this space where it's not quite in the center of political arguments and, and discussions. I absolutely agree with the second half of what you just said, and I think I would push back a little bit on the first half, yeah. um, which is there is no question in my mind, especially after last October and the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, and we saw plummeting in public confidence around the court, and you were exactly right. What John Roberts did was more or less reverse engineer the entire term to keep the, the court out of the front pages. Yeah, yeah. And with the exception right, of the gerrymandering case on the last day of the term, and then the census, the citizen census question uh, at the very end of the term, there was very little drama. And I think that was by design. Ironically, what happened is that a lot of those cases that were calendared, they should have been heard last spring. And John Roberts, very, very savvy said, you know what, we're going to hold all of those over. We're not going to take any of those this term because we need to stay out of the papers. They all landed in the court's lap in, with a thud <laughs> this term. And so I think uh, you're absolutely right in your assessment of what John Roberts tried to do. I think because almost every one of these cases had to be heard, we now have what I think is the biggest term I've ever seen in is my right? career. Yeah. We've got you know the Title VII, LGBTQ, and trans workers protection case. We've got the biggest gun case that the court will hear in a decade, uh, a New York gun statute. Uh, we've got, without a doubt, the biggest abortion case I think the court will hear for a long time. Uh, the DACA case, the Dreamer, all of that piled up. Right. And so I think this term, and think about it this way, maybe the best way to think about it is, historically, the last thing the court wants to do is dump all those decisions in the June before, before an election, a presidential right? election, all of those cases are going to come down in June before the election. And the icing on top is throughout that time, John Roberts may well be sitting, presiding over an impeachment hearing in the Senate. Right. So I think you're right. Diagnostically, this last thing John Roberts wants is to be the guy. But boy, by happenstance, by waiting and slow walking some of these cases and by virtue of the impeachment, he's going to be on the front page of the paper every day between now and 
June. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's also this real question, of course, about the new makeup of this court and what it will look like and how it will play out in some of those more controversial cases. Uh, I, I'm someone who is always sort of defaulting to the position that that there, uh, you know, there are kind of institutional forces that keep the court from swinging too wildly one way or another. But but Brett Kavanaugh is a very different justice, will be a very different justice than, than Anthony Kennedy was. Uh, what, what do you see in terms of the way that this new court will approach these cases, as you point out, uh, many of them very uh, politically controversial. Uh, is it going to be really different than what we've seen in recent years? Well, I, I would say one thing we learned from last term is that Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch are not the same person. And if there was one key takeaway at the end of the term, the notion that you had one singular type of Trump justice, that they were sharing a brain, was completely debunked. Sure. They are very different jurists. Very different, uh, I would say, political philosophies, ideological philosophies, uh, very different uh, ideas about what they value. And so one of the things we saw is there's not going to be a monolithic, you know, Gorsuch-Kavanaugh uh, doctrine that emerges. That said, I think both of them in different ways were holding their powder for exactly the reasons that John Roberts was holding his powder. We have a template for this uh, after Antonin Scalia died mm -hmm. and the court was for almost a year down to eight justices. We saw that the justices are very deft at going small, narrowing the issues, mm -hmm. kicking away cases that they can't take. And I think last term was really emblematic of an effort to do that, to go small. I think this term, you're quite right. These are two big cases to go small. And so that I think with some exceptions, I think that the, the um, June Medical Services, the Louisiana abortion case uh, is a really good example of the court. They could have taken a big ticket, all out, six week heartbeat ban mm -hmm. and written the words Roe v. Wade is overruled. I think the decision to take a small version of the abortion case is very much a way of we're going to do this, but we're going to do it slowly. And I think that's what we look for this term. There are going to be a few issues like the Dreamers, uh, probably like the gun case where there is no way to go small. Right. <laughs> but I think in some of these, you'll see the court taking an incrementalist, humble, very, very technical approach rather than big swing reverse everything the Warren court ever ever did in the span of a month. Yeah. I, I also am super curious, uh, as always, about the role that the chief justice is going to play in in all of this. I, I remember when uh, he was nominated and confirmed to the to the court a lot of the things that he said about his approach to things. And of course, we've seen a lot of what he's done over the last 14 years. But uh, I, I think this is somebody who instinctively resists the idea that the court should be deciding these big things. Uh, and I think resents the the political nature of some of the, the, the hearings that, that have taken place. Uh, how likely is he as the likely swing vote to swing left as a way of just keeping the, st the, the kind of stasis at the court, just keeping the court from, from uh, moving wildly one way or another. That's my favorite question of this year. I think it is the single most urgent question is, 
it's very clear that there is a block of four conservative justices, a block of four liberal justices. I think it's useful to reframe the idea that he's a swing justice because Anthony Kennedy was yes. legitimately a centrist sort of country club Republican, could not be counted on uh, by any block of the court. And it's the reason that, you know, Obergefell, the gay marriage case, uh, whole women's health, the abortion case, time after time, he defected and joined the liberal branch uh, to give outcomes on affirmative action, on all sorts of things. Uh, I don't think we have that kind of He's swing not voter. The same, John uh, Roberts is very much lifetime movement conservative. We know how he feels about, uh, for instance, the Voting Rights Act. We know how he feels about same-sex marriage. We know how he feels about abortion. So he's not in play in the same way Kennedy was. But you are completely right that he has this other... Uh, yardstick that is separate from left-right and it's separate from ideology and it is that he sees himself as the steward of an institution yeah. that he is responsible for and he kind of lines himself up with John Marshall and the great chief justices and so he has another valence around all these which is how do I make sure that the American public doesn't lose confidence in the court mm -hmm. and I think that is almost a primary directive for him even more so than legal outcomes and so you're quite right I think that the where the action is at the court is his decisions about out, am I going to defect on issues as he did last year in the census case, as he famously did in the two Obamacare challenges? Am I going to defect? Not because I think that the liberals are right, right on the merits. In none of those cases did he think that the liberals were right on the merits. But for the optics reasons that you laid out, that it cannot look, particularly going into an election, particularly in an impeachment year, particularly post-Kavanaugh, that we have a 5-4 court in which all of the conservatives were appointed by Republicans, all of the Democrats were appointed by Democrats. Uh, all of the liberals were appointed by Democrats. And this is just a purely partisan institution. Yeah. He hates he, that. He really despises that. He mm -hmm. made that really clear during the confirmation hearings back in, I guess it was 05. Um, and, and, and also think about the fact that he's got this other thing to juggle, which no chief justice in your and my lifetime has had to juggle, which is, I don't think he cares for the president very much. I think that's right. And uh, that's a whole other metric that he has to work into this, is that when he signs off with the court's conservatives on the travel ban case, on the Hawaii travel ban case, he is more or less holding his nose, making a very, very theoretical argument about executive power. But there's nothing in his opinion that says, I trust this president uh, who was <laughs> tweeting policy right. uh, to do things right. So he's got this other complication in addition to everything we've talked about, which is I think that he does not want to be seen as being in the tank for a president who every other week takes a pot shot at uh, Article Three judge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor and legal correspondent at Slate, where she also hosts a podcast called Amicus. Uh, she is the keynote speaker at National Council of Jewish Women, Michigan's annual benefit luncheon, uh, Women of Vision. Today, uh, we're talking about the new Supreme Court term just underway this month in Washington. We were talking earlier about the gerrymandering ruling that affects us here in the state of Michigan, where uh, just in a few years, we're going to try to do gerrymandering really differently. Uh, this ruling could have forced us to redraw the map 
before that happens, before the 2020 elections, uh, the justices said no to that option. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about impeachment, uh, this little thing that is uh, unfolding in Congress right now. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what your predictions are for this impeachment process. Do you think Democrats in the House are going to impeach the president? How likely do you think it is that he might actually be removed from office, which would require 67 votes in the Senate uh, to go along with a majority vote in the House? Do you feel like anything will actually come of this? Or do you think it's a huge distraction to undertake, especially as we head into a year in which the president has to stand for re-election anyway. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. So, uh, Dahlia, I want to start the discussion about impeachment with the title of um, uh, of uh, something that you recently uh, did at Slate. How many times could Donald Trump be impeached? <laughs> love, I love that title. Uh, but that I think is a is a very uh, clever reference to the number of different things that this president has done that seem, from uh, from a constitutional perspective, to to stretch the bounds of what the executive is supposed to do. Uh, how do you sort of uh, lay that imprint over what is actually happening in Congress where Democrats are dead serious, it seems, about, uh, about looking into this Ukraine business? Are they really looking very sort of uh, casting a wide net here and looking at all of the president's behavior. That, that was the question I was asking in that piece, Stephen, and I really um, was ambivalent about whether Democrats should go for the kitchen sink approach. You know, emoluments, all of it, the obstruction stuff from the Mueller report. I mean, there's so many things. Or if very, very narrow aperture, just focusing in exclusively on the Ukraine incident was the way to go. And in that piece, I actually interviewed Professor Lawrence Tribe, yeah. uh, famous uh, Harvard constitutional scholar. And he said, and I think he's quite persuasive, he said, do the Ukraine because, A, it's understandable, B, it's manageable, C, there's a clear narrative arc. We understand what it was that happened. And then he said, investigate the other stuff and just keep on impeaching him, sort of sequential <laughs> impeachments. And I, I, it was a little gobsmacking when he said it to me, but I think the point was, look, we're in a race against time. Uh, this has to happen quickly if it's going to happen. And I think his sense of it was... Do the thing that you can prove up now that people believe. I mean, we've seen staggering changes in public opinion mm -hmm. just in two weeks. And I think his view was there is no emotional satisfaction in doing such a narrow, uh, uh, a narrowly focused uh, investigation, but that there is some practical reason to do it. And, and I thought that was pretty um, persuasive. And I, I think since I wrote that piece, it's been clear that uh, Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler in the House, various House committees have settled on, quote, abuse of power. Mm -hmm. That's going to be uh, uh, the the bucket in which they want to put everything. And don't forget, that's one of the three articles of impeachment against Nixon. So right. I think as a as a as a map, it's at least pragmatic and useful. I don't think it sweeps in, as you say, there are so much conduct we could talk about, but at least it's coherent. Yeah. Well, I've also been 
saying in conversations about this lately that there is something really different about this question about this phone call with the leader of Ukraine and almost everything else that the president has done. And and that distinction in my mind is that when the founders were were writing the Constitution, arguing about the Constitution, writing in favor of the Constitution, this was the particular crime they were concerned about when they were talking about impeachment, which they were talking about, you know, who should be responsible for holding the executive branch accountable on this. They were specifically worried about the idea of uh, foreign influence in domestic politics, uh, which meant something really different back then than it does now. Uh, but they were concerned that that you would have an executive who would try to reach out to foreign powers to you know interfere with uh, with his enemies here. I think that makes it rise to a different level than some of these other things. Uh, but I keep having conversations with conservatives who say, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't agree. So, uh, you know, I, we always have these debates about what the founders thought and what was important to them. But we have their words here that uh, specifically point to this as an area of concern. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that's so tricky about this moment is we're looking at 200-year-old ideas and very, very dusty, arcane notions of what is, I mean, it's so perplexing that the framers spelled out high crimes and misdemeanors, but didn't tell us what it meant. And then they go on to list by name, bribery and treason. And we've been, I think, also in this feedback loop where we're thinking high crimes and misdemeanors must mean a felony, right? It has to be a crime unless there's a a parking ticket or a smoking gun or an erased Watergate tape, uh, (laughs) then we can't talk about it. And of course, if you go back and you look at the debates, the framers had no intention of saying it had to be a crime. You had to have broken a federal statute. And in fact, Bribery wasn't a federal, right? That wasn't <laughs> right. criminalized under the law. Uh, so I think that we are having to reframe this as we have to get out of the language of crime and into the language of exactly what you just said. What are the kind of existential threats that the framers were contemplating? And it wasn't a parking ticket, and it wasn't even, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 the kinds of bribery that we think of. It was bad leadership. It was making poor choices. It was, as you say, making the country vulnerable to foreign sources or subordinating the needs of the country to personal imperatives. That was the fear. And I think it's really hard to explain that to people because we've gotten so fixated on the no quid pro quo and the bribery statutes. And that's not what the framers were interested in at all. They were worried about a president who put himself and his desires above the country, and as you said, do so in a corrupt way that allows uh, foreign meddling, that's not necessarily a crime, but it is certainly what they were contemplating. Yeah, yeah. and that's really hard, as you just point out, for people to understand that this is not about the law and the way that we think of uh, regular criminal trials unfolding or, or other kind of misbehavior. This really is about, uh, as you point out, leadership and, and what kind of leadership the, the founders envisioned for, for the country and what bounds they wanted to put on, uh, on that leadership. Uh, okay, we're running out of time here, but uh, quickly I want to ask you about your keynote speech at the National Council of Jewish Women, Michigan's annual benefit luncheon, whose title is Women 
woman of vision. Uh, what will people hear from you today, Dahlia? Um, well, I'm so I'm so honored and glad that National Council of Jewish Women uh, Michigan invited me. I think that they have done yeoman's work on questions about the courts and the judiciary, and I think it's such a sort of boring, wonky topic, and nobody thinks about <laughs> it <not>. in any <laughs> systemic way. And I am really excited to talk about you know, just for me the the convergence of women and law and the rule of law, particularly in a moment where, as you said in your very opening, it feels like basic institutions, things that we thought were institutions that are just norms are slipping away from us. And I just, I I am so proud of the work that NCJW has done to really bolster institutions that feel as though they're not rock solid. So I'll be talking about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Good to see you here in Detroit. It's great to be here. (laughs) And great to catch up with you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. All right. Up next, we're going to talk with the founders of two organizations focusing on women in political activism, Get Her Elected and Moms Demand Action. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.